listening to the Theosophia podcast, curated by Kelsey Davis and Sarah Elizabeth Smith. Be sure to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com theosophia and consider supporting this labor of love project for women's empowerment. The next two episodes feature Cortland Becton. Cortland is a native Houstonian, and she says that it's by the grace of God that she has received a bachelor's degree from the University of Alabama in African-American Studies and Religious Studies, as well as a Master of Theological Studies from Vanderbilt Divinity School. Cortland is passionate about affecting social change, serving underprivileged children and youth, and writing poetry. She will be attending law school in the fall. Cortland and I cover some ground, so be sure to check out both episodes to catch the fullness of her wisdom. Here's Cortland. to have you on the show um so just an opening question um where where are you right now where where are your feet so currently i'm in memphis um cordova memphis uh and i recently just moved here with my husband from nashville so when we both graduated from vanderbilt we decided to move back to memphis uh, where his parents are his family Um, we're staying with them for the summer and planning to move to Philly next. So he uh, landed a job in Delaware uh, working for a law firm uh, that he's really excited about working for. And I'm looking to attend Temple Law. So I'm planning uh, to start up school again. (laughs) Hopefully this is my last degree um, in August. So right now I'm just kind of working in Memphis, allowing my brain to chill a little bit before I start again. with the rigorous process of law school. Yeah, it's important to take some space in between yeah. pushes. So yeah. Uh, um, what kind of law does Steven want to get into or is he into? Uh, he'll be in good, going into corporate litigation. Um, and he also chose a firm that very much like prizes pro bono work. And so he'll be able to count a lot of his pro bono work towards his billable hours uh, which is which was huge for him when he was looking for a law firm um, so that he could really balance out his kind of corporate endeavors with giving back to the community and making sure that he can use his gifts to really help and liberate a lot of people. That's awesome. I can only um, imagine the conversations around y'all's dinner table in the evening. So <laughs> yeah, it'll I bet they're pretty rich, right? Yeah. Yeah. So far he's like studying for the bar and um, I'm trying to like read, there's a book that I'm reading that's like what every law student needs to know as they go into law school. And so I'm trying to kind of get a sense of what he's learning as he's preparing for the bar. Uh, but really throughout his whole law school process and through my divinity school process, we've been sharing about a lot of points of connection that we've seen between the two fields. Uh, of course, there's a lot of diversion, uh, divergence, but there are interesting points of connection. Um, when you start talking about more morals, morality, uh, how our country structured, 
and the ways in which religion has played into kind of the justice system. So we've had some really interesting conversations and I'm looking forward to even more um, when I start to get into law school and can kind of speak more on the terms that he's been, I mean, kind of in the world that he's been in the past few years. Yeah, for sure. Is there anything off the top of your head um, for those, you know, for the people who are listening and for me too, of, mm-hmm. um, you know, what is an intersection point with how religion has influenced the legal system in this country? Yeah. Um, when I first took like American or history of American religion um, or religions in America, I kind of saw where our system, our religious and justice systems um, really devalued Native Americans. And that was like one of our main points of touch um, where it intersected with kind of where I saw things kind of trickle down. So the stigmatization of the Native Americans' um, religion, their way of life, uh, the way that they didn't really view land as property to be held by one person. Um, well, one, on the religious side, I mean, we know that that was, there were a lot of convergent efforts. Normal schools were created to kind of bring Native Americans into the fold and assimilate them really um, in a cultural type of genocide and religious genocide. Um, well, also, and I can't speak as knowledgeably on, about the legal side of things, but I remember this one case that Stephen told me about um, where I think there was a dispute over land use or land ownership. And there was a lot of language around how the Native Americans like were savages and couldn't, didn't have the capacity to own the land. And so it was given to, I guess, like the white landowner who was kind of fighting for the property. So in a similar way, like the language that we were using or that was used in a religious context to demean Native Americans and kind of subordinate them was also used as a way to disenfranchise them from their legal rights. And I mean, of course we see um, the repercussions of that today, but that's just one example. I think that there can be other examples that you can bring about other marginalized communities in ways that in a religious sense provided a justification. And then you see in a legal sense, kind of that justification as well, kind of coming through culturally, but also speaking to, to justify some of the, in, I don't know, injustice that's, that's happened. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, I remember in divinity school having a lot of these conversations um, with some of our classmates um, and also um, with each other, you know, um, we got to spend some time in some good conversation and, what it caused me to really think about in, in the example that you just gave is um, who, who has the asset, you know, who's benefiting from this land right now, mm-hmm. right? How did we acquire this land and whose land, like who was here before we were here, you know, and um, really zooming out and looking at the bigger picture of the story of geography and the story of the land and and people's place and the various cultures that that are present with us and also we're here before us whoever us is right right right. and um i remember just sort of being um shocked and woken up 
you the reality of what you just described with how many sort of church buildings and religious land, Mm -hmm. you know, Christian land, I should say specifically, that's the only sector I can really speak to was built and was built on top of and over um, indigenous people's places, you know? So what does that mean now um, in terms of reparation and of, you know, reconciliation and moving towards justice and healing and liberation. And what, what is the church's role in working with indigenous communities to um, try to start the journey of, of healing, you know, possibly even returning the land. um, Yeah. Yeah. That would be radical. I think, um, you know, because we're talking about narrative and you mentioned narrative, I think the church's role can definitely be, starting to revive the narrative because um, what, what really justified the treatment of Native Americans and other marginalized people, uh, I think in this country, is this like city on the hill narrative that our country is set apart. Um, it's like this new Jerusalem and it, it, you know, you see kind of hate groups really like taking that and running with it um, and using it to dismantle this us that you're talking about um and it's really just undermining a lot of i think what the gospel tries to do and bringing people together um and takes it and and just really perverts it so i think the church can definitely start by really engaging with that history and starting to understand the foundation upon which a lot of these structures christian and legal and i mean cultural are you know based based upon absolutely are very idealistic about our history but it's pretty gruesome it is it's very gruesome very complex um but yeah looking honestly at at multiple sides of of that narrative is Mm -hmm. so important um you know in an earlier episode sarah and i talked about um you know in the power of story and story sharing that um recognizing who is the one telling the story mm-hmm. and whose voices aren't part of that narrative because they've right. been suppressed or omitted or and and doing the hard and longer work of trying to find more voices to fill out the narrative right yes yes so so i'm curious um two things mm-hmm. um how do you identify spiritually and religiously and and then you know we've been talking about divinity school and law school and just yeah. what drew you to want to want to do divinity school and now law school so um like right now i would identify religiously as kind of like non-denominational um i grew up in the united methodist church and um kind of throughout like going to college and going to div school i've just realized that i'm more drawn to the gospel and like the truth of the gospel regardless of where it is coming from um so i really would label myself as just like a follower of jesus and um there there aren't other labels that i'm ascribing to so when i was going through and getting my masters of theological studies there was really no um denomination that was informing my studies um besides my commitment to learning more and growing more in my relationship with God and learning more about Jesus's life. Um, so that, that's really kind of how I identify now. Uh, 
and to your question of what drew me to div school and then what drew me to law school, um, I studied, I majored in religious studies and African American studies in undergrad. And religious studies was interesting in two ways. Um, one, it really, it kind of grew me personally. So I came in to undergrad almost agnostic, um, really struggling with my relationship with God, really trying to f figure out and kind of piece together um, a religion. Like I just had a lot of questions about Christian religion. I had issues with the church, um, certain clergy members at the, at the church that I was at, um, just a lot of questions and kind of disillusionment. And so going into religious studies, I wanted to study more about religions in general, um, not just the Christian faith. And it, through that process, I really discovered how my relationship with God is more meaningful than customs, uh, than rituals, um, than certain religious practices, if you'll, if you think of, um, some, just some of the things that have hurt me, um, people who disappointed me, um, and realizing that my, my, relationship with God and also the people in my life um, who he's placed there who've really been helpful for me um, in growing. Mm. That degree really kind of helped me to piece that together. So as I was studying other religions, I grew with the respect for those religions, but also started to understand um, and seek out some of the Christian pathways, I would say, that spoke more to me and, and seemed more true to who I knew God to be. Um, so after taking a more like study of religion, I, I noticed that there was a lack of theology and a lack of like understanding of, or study of who I understood God to be. Um, and it seemed kind of like, I don't know, it just didn't seem like it was rounded out. It seemed like there was a, a missing piece. So I really wanted to go to div school to explore more of how, people think of God um, and how those thoughts of God and relationship and interactions with God have structured our society, have structured our communication. Um, while I was there, I was, while I was at Vanderbilt, um, I was also drawn to artistic expression and the ways in which art has touched, um, has, is really, really a dialectic. And so like the way that art and the artist and the audience all kind of come together in a communal way that's beautiful. And I think that also reflects more purely than what I've seen before um, in rituals, like more purely just reflecting how people interact with God. It seemed to be more, um, well, I'll say less regulated and just more uh, authentic. So, that really spoke to me and um, helped me to realize that although art is one of my passions and I love to write poetry, um, I actually, my therapist has kind of been encouraging me to write poetry as like a form of worship and, and finding new ways to communicate with God through art, which has been really powerful and, and meaningful for me. Um, I found that I do want to also want to impact the world through changing systems and so when I started to think more about the ways in which um, religion as well as how we think about God have structured certain certain systems in our society 
um, particularly the legal system, um, and how it really disenfranchises a lot of people, including Black people. Um, I found really, char I found that I was really charged to try to go to law school um, and learn more about that system and kind of work within it to, uh, to impact the people whose lives have been changed for better or for worse um, by the system, more often than not for worse. So that's kind of where my push is. Um, and I know we can get a bit more personal here too. Um, I'm adopted. And so knowing that I'm adopted and knowing that I only spent about a month in the foster care system, um, which is a legal part of the legal system, um, I'm just like really curious to learn more about that system and see how I could help to impact more youth as well. I feel called to working with children and youth. So um, when I go to law school, I'm going to try to take classes that are looking into family law, look into juvenile justice work, because I think the way that we treat children in the juvenile, I mean, just in the juvenile justice system is, I mean, it's wrong, honestly. Um, and it isn't helpful. So uh, one class that really helped kind of was the nail in the coffin, if you will, like, I'd, I'd hate to say coffin because it's not a really good image for what I'm trying to portray here, but it kind of was like the, the real push for me to go to law school and affirmation that I could do it and that I need to, um, was taking a class at Riverbend Maximum Security and, um, which is the Maximum Security Prison located in Tennessee, um, outside of Nashville well is it outside of Nashville or is it okay it's it's close enough to downtown okay. Nashville yeah I think okay. it's like 15 or 20 minutes from this the heart of the city but okay. I think at least yeah yeah I think so so it's yeah. still Nashville proper sure. right yeah yeah okay yeah um so I was you know I took um trauma like learning about trauma and compassion um basically life and death row um with so we would sit every week with death row inmates and hear about the trauma that they experienced um and the way that compassion has touched them and transformed their lives and the way that it can continue to do so um, and what was so interesting to me was how many of my classmates um from the div school and also who were in the maximum security prison had childhood trauma and had not dealt with it in a productive or healthy way did not know any avenues to do so um and in some instances the criminal justice system exacerbated that trauma so that really spoke to me to be like wow i could be like an intervention link i could help to really touch some of those children who are kind of getting caught up in the system to maybe prevent them from getting in a place where they're on death row. So that kind of really sealed that for me. Um, and I'll, I'll be heading into law school with that charge. Yeah. Wow. Cortland. <laughs> um, you know, just, you just said so many, so many things. And, um, you know, one, one of our points of, of connection is not only that we went to school together, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I have a, I have a cousin right now who's incarcerated. He's in, mm -hmm. he's in a prison here in California and he's been in and out of, of prison for, for a very long time. And, um, you know, to, I've, I've, I visited, you know, one of our women's prisons here as well. And, um, you know, the, the, the the prison system needs needs some help 
yeah. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. Um, and, you know, not only why people become incarcerated in the first place unjustly, mm-hmm. um, but, but then what happens once they are on the inside? Um, mm-hmm. You know, are we rehabilitating people um, or are we churning people out just to come right back in? Right. Yeah. And, yeah. um, you know, I just, um, I'm just really grateful for your passion and for the work that you are willing to take on. Um, it's, it's, you know, I would call it the gospel Yeah. and, you know, you're living the gospel and, um, which, which in my, you know, my theology is sort of wrapped up, yes, in love, but more mm-hmm. so in, in Micah, which is, you know, doing justice, loving mercy and walking humbly. And, mm-hmm. and you were doing that. So thank you. And, um, you know, doing, doing this work is, is beautiful and it's also can be pretty exhausting, right? Oh, for sure. So I'm curious, who are the people around you that are breathing life into you and supporting you? Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely, I mean, it definitely is a challenge, uh, and you need people to support you. And I definitely could not do this type of work if it wasn't for uh, my husband, um, Stephen, who has been helpful really throughout all, like throughout my own transformation, but also throughout my learning experiences um, and kind of getting through school, deciding to go to law school, and then applying, which has been a daunting task. So. Um, I know I definitely couldn't do it without him. Um, I would say my mom's, my mom and my mother-in-law, my father and my father-in-law are so supportive of me. Um, they don't always understand kind of where my passion is or like what my vision is. Um, but I think that they can hear the passion in my voice and they can understand how happy I am in doing the work that I do, uh, which means a lot to me um, because their opinion has always meant so much to me. Uh, my brother and my sister as well um, push me because I know that they're coming up as well. Like they, uh, my brother's a couple years younger than me. My sister-in-law maybe five years younger than me. So um, I just try to lead by example. I know that um, doing this type of work has been just so transformational for me. I know I've used that word quite a few times because it has been and it has helped me to heal from my own pain and my own past trauma and I hope that they can see that Mm -hmm. um, because they've known me for so long so I hope that they can see that change and hope to do similar work um, and make changes within themselves Um, also classmates such as yourself um, all of my div school family um, but particularly my div school family that was more in the I would always say artsy realm, but like, you know, like the people who were doing religion and the arts, like, I just feel like we all kind of understood each other on a different level um, in ways that words couldn't always portray. And so, you know, the academic field is so verbose and like word heavy, and it was always a nice reprieve to come into an artistic space where people were expressing themselves in unconventional ways. And I felt more welcome um, in those spaces. And, um, also I will say, um, I want to shout out two people, Kaylin Lee and, uh, Kai Walker, who sent me videos of them speaking recently at different engagements. And in both speeches, one spoke about, um, Kai spoke about community and, um, Kaylin spoke about, um, just like 
using your platform to help others and making sure that you're not taking advantage of people in near charity work, mm. which were both amazing just speeches. I was brought to tears really from both of their, I mean, from both of their speeches because I wasn't there spiritually or, I mean, I wasn't there physically, but I was there spiritually with them. Um, and it's just so beautiful to see other people doing the work. Um, and I mean, they're both women of color. So that was also uh, just amazing to see black women speaking in front of, you know, traditionally white spaces. So that was, I mean, all of these people have been amazing support systems for me. I'm sure I might be leaving some people out. Um, but I know my grandmother has also been very helpful. So um, there's, there's a, a whole list of people, but those are my main support systems. And I really appreciate each and every one of them. Yeah, it's beautiful, Cortland. Is there like if we if, could we look up those speeches online would they be like on youtube i think they're on youtube okay. um i can send you some links so yeah, i know awesome. i know kaylin's link is on youtube i'm not sure about kai's but okay. i can double check yeah especially like i would love to see them and for our listeners too would love to be able yeah. to share them if with a you know if it's okay and of course yeah that's that's wonderful i love what you said too about the um the arts community at Div School, and um, you know that was that was one of the most surprising things of Divinity School. But like, once we all found each other, it was like home, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I just remember sitting in the art room with you down in that basement, and um, you know, looking at art and um, just having beautiful conversations and. Um, that's when I, I think you shared one of your poems with me at one point and just, you know, there was a project you were working on during divinity school too. Um, um, I don't know if you want to speak to that or share about that, but it's, it's pretty powerful stuff. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, The commuter collective um, was really birthed out of a class that I took with Dr. Dave Perkins. um, And the class was called creativity, a theological endeavor. um, And well, one, just like the class itself was surprising, like you're saying, like to, to come into a space where you're thinking you're going to be learning about church history, you know, taking like New Testament and Old Testament to have something like creativity, a theological endeavor was automatically like, oh, this is my jam. So I was in the class and we had a group assignment where we broke off into groups according to our interests. My group was using creativity for social justice. Um, and I was we were in a group kind of thinking about ways that we can impact Nashville and the commute and just like commuters came into the conversation about how we can empower people on their commutes and the way in which um, traffic and like building traffic and just Nashville's growth has fractured a lot of communities Mm. um, and left a lot of voices out. Yeah. And so kind of that was a brainchild that we had but then we were approached by um miss uh uh, dr Teresa smallwood from the public theology and racial justice um collaborative to really apply for a grant um Mm. so that we could really get this going and on a roll so the commuter collective was an idea that we had to put art from these different communities mostly minority communities around nashville onto buses to create an exhibition, if you will, like a moving exhibition and invite 
um, commuters to engage with each other and recognize that there is community even on your commute. Um, and so we applied for the grant, we received the grant and partnered with Freedom Schools Nashville to work with the, um, the Children in Freedom School, um, which, is a, which is an initiative that was started out of Freedom Summer, um, the Mississippi Freedom Summer, and um, was picked up by the Children's Defense Fund to create the Freedom Schools. So each summer, it's a literacy program targeted to minority and underprivileged um, children um, to combat like summer learning loss. And it's a very like cultural, um, cultural centered program, like Afrocentric. Mm -hmm. Um, and we wanted to make sure that their voices were heard in Nashville. So they worked on art projects for us and, or together with us. Um, they had a lot of rain because we are a collective. So we wanted to create um, a space where the power dynamics weren't top down. It's more vertical, um, where everyone had a say in the production of the art, um, the featuring of the art. So we got the art on the buses, on the outside of some of our buses um, in Nashville, as well as um, our bus benches. Um, there was actually one across the street from Vanderbilt. So we would see it sometimes going to and from school. Um, and when I returned for graduation, it was still there too, which was surprising. Uh, so that was a, an amazing project that I worked on. Um, Abby Labreck and Lisa Freeman, uh, kind of, we were the three that kind of broke off from our larger group from Dr. Perkins' class and, and kind of worked on this um, grant project. Um, and it was, it was really just amazing to, I was in Delaware for a lot of the summer that they were working on the art. So I was kind of remotely talking with them. So I didn't get to really interact with the children as much. Um, but seeing their art and seeing their reactions to the art that they had was, I mean, was amazing. And I know um, that it's a very unique project to do, especially in grad school, but particularly in divinity school. So I'm very appreciative of the different, I mean, departments around Vanderbilt that really helped us pull that off. It's amazing. Um, it's absolutely amazing. I have a, a big smile on my face and so do you. So yeah. um, I hope um, if and when I get to go back to Nashville, you know, I, that that art will still be up. Um, yeah. It's, it's, that's awesome. Um, and, and, you know, what I hear over and over again, just in you sharing various, you know, stories and points of your life um, mm -hmm. is your involvement in community and yeah. sort of you, you know, you named a bunch of people that are, are supportive and loving to you, you know, your friends at school, you know, working on group projects. Mm -hmm. Um You've mentioned a couple times, you know, going through your own healing journey yeah. of your own sort of childhood traumas. And um, what are what are a couple things? Because I think community plays a part in that, right? Or it can, right? It can. It has yeah. the potential. Um, what are a couple um, practices or truths that have helped you address your trauma? and and be on this healing journey because we all have trauma it's just at what degree and from whom or what right mm -hmm. so we all are in need of healing all the right. time oh, and yeah. um so what would be a maybe a couple things that, that that help you um that are helping you heal yeah um definitely curating that community space um, and I'm, I'm using curating in a very intentional way because there are some people who aren't necessarily ready 
to help me on my healing journey. Um, so I think I've had to be, I have to be very intentional about who I bring into certain, like the inner circle of my healing community. Um, and that has been a discernment process for me. And it's not an exclusion, but it's more so like at this step, I don't, I'm not sure if it would be healthy for you or me to engage in kind of healing my own trauma. Um, so that's, that would be one uh, practice I would say, uh, setting boundaries and, and being able to curate that community um, based on where I am. Now, we, you know, when we get to the point where I get to the point where I have, I feel comfortable, I feel like I've healed enough, like that's where the point where I can really branch out more and start to tell my story to help others. Um, and I guess that kind of branches into that second point that I wanted to bring up, which is um, being sensitive to others' trauma and how my own personal experiences can maybe speak to their traumas. Um, so while I, like a good example was at Riverbend uh, Maximum Security, where I would hear about um, just a horrific abuse, um, abandonment, just, just to the extreme where y you really question like what was going on in the in their parents lives where they were you know treated their own children in that way right. um and opening up about you know getting to a point of comfortability and opening up about my own adoption and the entrenched feelings of abandonment and rejection that i had around that a lot of questions that i had um but i but i posed those like i didn't try to impose them on them and be like oh like on top of your trauma you know, try to handle mine too. It was more so like, let's try to work through this together and you're not alone. And I'm not here to be like, I have all the answers either because I'm also healing, um, which created a very, again, kind of curating that communal space, um, created a space where people felt more comfortable in sharing and opening up, but also in speaking to that other person's trauma. So I remember, um, I don't remember if it was our last day or if our second to last day with, or second to last week in, uh, in Riverbend. Um, but I do remember a couple of one, one man who had a good friend who's, uh, who put one of her children up for adoption, um, and, and went through that process. And he talked to me about how difficult it was for her, um, to do that and how much of an act of love it was for her. Um, and that really just like was so helpful to me. And I know that if I hadn't put out my trauma or put out, have been vulnerable at the beginning of the class, you know, he might, he probably wouldn't have even felt comfortable or wouldn't even have known that that would be something that would help me heal. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's, it sounds like there's so much intentionality and discernment in, um, how we share stories mm -hmm. and um, how we receive stories. Yeah. And, um, you know, you and I going, going into this conversation and, but by the way, you've also mentioned a couple of times therapy and I just want to yes. like oh, lift yeah. up, shout out like yeah. a good therapist. Like we all need a good therapist, right? Oh my goodness. Yes. So that can, there's, there's actually a website Okay, there, there's a website um, called Therapy for Black Girls that I found 
my, or my mother-in-law helped me to find a therapist on. So, I mean, therapy is very important, but I am wanting to speak specifically to the black community where it's, I think therapy is um, just doubly stigmatized um, that there are resources to help, uh, you know, black people and specifically black women. So there are certain things that I could talk to my therapist with and feel more comfortable talking with her with because she is a black woman and she does understand kind of where I'm coming from is certain things. So she, I mean, I don't want to glaze over her, her impact on my life. Um, she definitely is a huge resource for me and um, definitely would love to shout her out. And if anyone has any questions or anything like that, I would love to be a resource too about finding the right therapist and that sort of thing. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's awesome. What's the website again? Therapyforblackgirls.com. Therapyforblackgirls.com. Yeah. yeah. They have a newsletter, a weekly newsletter, as well as um, a directory based on locations that are you just, just list um, black women or black women therapists around the country. That's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. So if, if you are someone that that would resonate with, go check it out. And For sure. Cortland just said she's well, she's open to being a resource too. So yeah. if you want to get in touch with her, you can email us and we'll link you guys up. So thanks for that, Cortland. Of course. Thanks for sharing your wisdom, Cortland. It was so good to have you on the podcast this week. What a rich, deep conversation. I can't wait to share your episode next week on God language, which is one of my favorite topics. So y'all be sure to catch us next week with round two with Cortland. And as always, be sure to stay in touch with us on all of our social media platforms and visit our Patreon page and consider supporting the Theosophia podcast. We will see y'all next week. Peace. Peace.